Hey everyone, I'm Shatej. Welcome to another episode of the Tractable Podcast. Today I have Nikhil with me. Nikhil is the uh, CTO at Materialize and I'm really excited to dive in and to some pretty meaty technical topics. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Well, before we dive into what you're up to at Materialize and, and the product and, and how it's all built, uh, tell me about your experience and the sorts of things you've always been interested in in your journey coming to Materialize. So I got my start as a web programmer, and I'll leave it as an exercise to listeners to go find that start. It's not very well hidden on the internet, uh, although I've, I've buried it somewhat. But in college, I got into systems programming. I just found working on lower level systems to be really interesting and really exciting because you have to push the envelope on performance. And a lot of the web programming that I did initially was a lot of fun because you could think about the user problems at a pretty high level, but you were never really getting to the nitty gritty of your computer's potential. And what's really exciting about systems programming is you are pushing the limits of physics. You are trying to make your CPU go as fast as possible. You are thinking about how much data can I transfer over the network card? What is the memory bandwidth between the RAM in my computer and the CPU in my computer. And I just find it really exciting to think about how you structure code to take advantage, to take full advantage of your hardware. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, do you think that all of the changes that have happened in web programming over time, do, do, you, do you find like you still keep up with those at this point or are you squarely just focused on the system stuff and in the database world, there's so many things to keep up with on, the, on its own that you don't, you don't really go back and, and revisit those. I keep up with it enough, just enough to be a danger to our web consulting. <laughs> we have right. three engineers who work full-time on the materialized web experience. And I helped get that stood up and I retained just enough knowledge to parachute in occasionally and <laughs> implement a feature. And then they quickly bring me up to speed on how one store is state in React in 2023, which is of yeah. course different from how one store state in React in 2022. So just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, okay, cool. So so let's talk about Materialize a little bit. G give me give me the journey of how Materialize got started. Um, what was the inspiration for it? Uh, why, why did Materialize come into existence? So I worked with now the CEO of Materialize, Arjun Narayan at Cockroach. We were both engineers at Cockroach. And Arjun, for the two years that we overlapped at Cockroach, could not stop talking about incremental view maintenance. He kept pointing out how silly it was that our database would process the same query over and over and over and over again, even though the data either hadn't changed at all or the data had just changed a little bit. But your standard transactional database like Cockroach does all of the work on reads. Writes are very cheap, as long as you don't have transactional contention, but you're just adding new data to a table, updating it in place. It's very little uh, bit of work that you do to do a write. But then when you show up and do a read, if you have a join between multiple tables, maybe you can push some filter conditions down so you only read a little bit of data from each of those tables. Maybe you read out of an index, but you're fundamentally going and doing a bunch of work at query time. And a lot of applications have the pattern that they are read heavy, not write heavy. So this is exactly backwards. You spend all of this time, all of the time, when if you could just turn the database inside out, do it the other way around. What if you could pay the cost on writes because you're not writing that often, and then the reads were super cheap. And the way you do that is by building incremental view maintenance into the database. Yeah. You declare your queries up front, 
And then the database incrementally keeps them up to date. And even in heavy workloads, you tend to have just a small amount of data that's changing every second. So you only have to do a right. small amount of work every second to bring all of those views uh, right. up to date. And I guess the the kind of core insight there is that a lot of the queries that you're doing, you know, when you're when you're reading this data, they don't change very often. Like you are really querying the same thing over and over again. One thing I'm curious about is you were at Cockroach, you were seeing this problem crop up. Why did mm -hmm. this need to be a separate database? Like why not why not build it into Cockroach? And what what was the the kind of dynamic of okay, let's let's go and rebuild this with this focus? So Arjun thought a lot about, could we build this inside of Cockroach? Frank McSherry, the other co-founder of Materialize, even came into Cockroach to give a talk about how we might be able to leverage timely and differential inside of Cockroach to build incremental view maintenance uh, in Cockroach. And there's a lot to like about a unified product, but the simple answer is Cockroach had its hands full. It is no small feat to build a horizontally scalable SQL database. And that was the problem that they were going after. And it's a pretty easy sell to take somebody who has a single node SQL database. If it's Postgres, Cockroach is directly compatible, but even if it's right. MySQL or Oracle or something like that, fundamentally still SQL, you can do a shift from Oracle or MySQL to Cockroach without the engineers and your DBAs having to throw away everything that they know. But that's a very smooth sales motion. It's a very simple uh, right. problem explanation. It's you're at the limits of scale with your current Oracle installation or your Postgres installation. Right. Pop in Cockroach, pretty much the same technology, except it's cloud native. It's going to scale with your workload. You right. won't be fighting to do replication in your application layer, trying to stitch together a bunch of shards. So the, the problem that Cockroach was solving uh, was fundamentally scaling the existing SQL mm. databases. Mm. And Materialize is a fundamentally new way of how you build applications and how you build analytics on top of a SQL database. So I think the sales motion there is just really difficult. Yeah. Um, and engineering-wise, it, it would have split the, the brains of everyone. Were you working on the IVM part of Cockroach or were you working on the traditional traditional OLTP part of Cockroach. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It sounds like even if the engineering hurdle could be overcome, uh, it's a very different go-to-market. You're, you're having a very different conversation with the prospect around the, the value prop of the product, right? Exactly. Yeah. And good prioritization decisions always feel bad. You have yeah. to say no and disappoint someone. But I think it made a lot of sense for Cockroach to focus on their core competency there. Cool. So you, you all you know, decided we're, we're going to build this new database. Uh, my understanding is it's actually evolved over time quite a bit. Uh, so, so tell me about how Materialize started. Uh, and then, you know, today you're at this cloud offering, uh, which looks pretty different than that. So what did that path look like? It's funny. I think in the notes you sent over to me, you asked about the transition from streaming database to operational data warehouse. And operational data warehouses are current terminology for what Materialize is. But if you go back one step further, the first positioning for Materialize was actually the streaming data warehouse. Hmm. Okay. So we started with the data warehouse framing, moved away from that to database, and then moved back to it. But this time without streaming, this time with operational. And okay. it's been the same underlying product the whole time. What we've been learning is how to talk about it. And the mm -hmm. key unlock for us was ditching streaming. 
as it turns out, streaming is an implementation detail. We have a stream processor at our core, but we don't right. expose that to you. The value of materialized to users is that you get the benefits of a stream processor without having to interact with that stream processor. You have the simplicity yeah. of SQL. So it took us a while to come to that realization, to figure out how to talk about what we were building with users, because we're all streaming experts. We all yeah. work yeah. with a stream processor every day as we build materialize. And it, it was surprisingly hard. It's obvious in retrospect, but it was surprisingly hard to get to the insight that we needed to stop talking about streaming. We're still happy to go into it, of course, when people want to dig into the implementation, but the problem right. statement no longer involves streaming. Um, well, one question I have, just even in the way you, you frame that, what's the difference between a data warehouse and a database? Like you, you said that was a little bit of a reframing, but if the underlying implementation has stayed largely the same, we talk about these like two very different categories of things. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you go down the one-on-one and you see billboards for databases yeah. and data warehouses. So what, what's the, <laughs> tell me about the, the, those two as two different categories versus should we be treating them as closer to one another than we do today? We've even fuzzed it up further by adding the operational keyword because it's even less clear how an operational data warehouse is different from a database. And right. the key distinction for me is about how many sources of data do you have? And a database tends to be its own source of truth. You transact against that database to put the absolute truth about your business or your application. That's where the facts are. You back up that database. You do not lose that database. If that database goes down, everything grinds to a halt for that right. application, for your business as a whole, depending on how load-bearing this database is. And then the data warehouse stitches together the data from a bunch of different databases. And it's not always things as pure as a Postgres or an Oracle transactional database. Often it's some SaaS application or the seven Excel spreadsheets that your finance team maintains that are the source of truth for your business. But I'd argue those Excel spreadsheets are actually the databases. And then the data warehouse is just the place you bring together all of your databases. And that's why we waffled on it because when you have an operational data warehouse, it's somewhere in the middle. But the thing that's really valuable about Materialize is when you bring together data from a bunch of different sources and that's the yeah. data warehouse piece of it and then the operational bit is we want materialized to be a load-bearing part of your company in a way that your data warehouse often isn't if your data warehouse is right. down for a day your reports are a day late you reschedule some meetings but it's not like your customers are in a, unable to use your product it's not like you're losing money because you're not doing fraud detection it's it's less critical but materialize is often a load-bearing part of people's day-to-day -day operations yeah, that, that's actually an interesting framing. It almost sounds like you're saying a database is, is the source of truth. Uh, a, a data warehouse is kind of where you engage the data because mm -hmm. oftentimes you need to bring different data sources together. Exactly. Um, do you think that in some sense you're kind of getting uh, the hard part of both of these, right? So so you're, you're mission critical because, you know, mm -hmm. people like you, you have case studies where people are using you for fraud detection. But you're also now reliant on all of these different sources of data. And, uh, you know, for example, one thing I know is very common with data warehouses is people run all sorts of degenerate workloads that causes all sorts of isolation problems. And oh, yeah. that typically doesn't happen in a database where things are much more locked down. So, so do you feel like you're inheriting uh, both classes of problems here? 
it's not a small problem, that's for sure. And the operational bit means we need to be up 24-7. And we might talk a little bit later about the challenges that entail. So yes, there are days where I think about how much we've bitten off and it's staggering. But then there are all the days where I remember the value we deliver to our customers is because we solve these hard problems. And I feel very good at the end of it all that materialize encapsulates all of this. We take on the operational burden of being up to date, of being able to handle these crazy queries, giving you the tools to isolate them properly. And yeah. that feels good. Yeah. The one problem that we didn't take on, and I am very grateful for this, is transaction management, concurrency mm. control. That we still offload to the transactional database. You have to tell us the order that events happened in. If you have thousands of customers making bank transfers or buying tickets to an event, Materialize doesn't have to solve the very hard problem of which customers' transfers go through and which get denied because an account is overdrawn or because the event has sold out. That has to right. be your Postgres or your Cockroach or your Oracle. You just right. tell us right. about what happened. This person yeah. got the ticket, this person didn't. And then we maintain all of the views downstream of that logic. But we did yeah. mercifully offload that very hard problem to the transactional databases. They're very good at it. Got it. So let's say I'm building Ticketmaster um, and I have my you know checkout form where I'm buying my tickets for the, the Taylor Swift concert, right? Yep. Uh, that traffic isn't going to materialize uh, from the checkout page. But right. once, once that transaction happens uh, and hopefully I get my ticket, then that goes to materialize as a sort of analytics workload, but, but maybe very importantly needs to happen quickly uh, exactly. And then you, you, you presumably have a bunch of, you kind of call it asynchronous, but but really maybe that's a vague term, uh, processes operating on top of that materialized data. Is, is that right? Yep. That's exactly right. And we would describe all of those processes as the operational processes. And real time is a term that comes up a lot. We like that term, but for some people, real time means it's a pacemaker. It needs to hit its guarantees multiple times a second or somebody's life is on the line. And that's not what we mean by real time. We just mean playing in the space of seconds rather than yeah. minutes or hours. And, and so who's typically the user of Materialize? And maybe another way to phrase this is who gets paged when Materialize is misbehaving or, or there's, some, there's some problem with the system? It varies by company and by use case. What we have found is analytics engineers are primarily the day-to-day -day users of Materialize. So this new class that DBT has invented of folks who are very clued into the business problems and in previous generations would have just worked in Excel or just written SQL and they'd maintain a local text file of the SQL queries that they ran. The analytics engineer has been trained to use DBT is familiar with software engineering best practices like version control and code review and PRs. And Materialize fits perfectly in this ecosystem. These folks are often skilled up on traditional data warehouses like Snowflake or BigQuery. And when you show them Materialize, everything they know is exactly the same. Their SQL works exactly the same way. It's just all of a sudden their data is available in seconds rather than minutes or hours waiting for these big batch ETL pipelines yeah. to bring in the latest hour or latest day of data. The yeah. other folks we see using Materialize are the data infrastructure folks. Hmm. They typically do the data engineering work to bring in the sources of data. They'll set up the replication sure. stream between Postgres and Materialize or 
the SaaS vendor and materialize. And yeah. often paging is a shared responsibility. <laughs> if it's the connection that goes down, you page your data infrastructure team. If it's that a model got deployed that now has incorrect logic in it that needs to be immediately corrected, that goes to the analytics engineering team. Got it. And it's it's interesting you you say in a lot of ways it's the the same query or the same workload, but it's just it's faster. Um, I, I imagine there's just a bunch of like net new use cases that in a in a batch world or maybe with something like Snowflake, you just can't drive because it doesn't make sense. Um, and, and maybe people then literally lean on Cockroach or Postgres instead of still having this shared view across a bunch of different sources. Uh, tell me a little bit about like, what are those use cases or like, where couldn't you use Snowflake uh, where you can use Materialize? So I just gave a talk at DBT's conference, Coalesce, uh, last month with Ryan Delgado from Ramp. And they had a fraud detection pipeline built out on Snowflake. And their analysts have put together hundreds of SQL queries to identify whether a transaction was fraudulent or not. But the latency on this thing was north of 30 minutes. They just could not drive their data into Snowflake faster than that. Running their DBT project took, I think, a little a little shy of 30 minutes. So you just can't go any faster than that. And that meant that somebody could take over an account and they had 30 minutes to issue fraudulent transactions in the wow. worst case for ramp right. uh, before that pipeline kicked in, I think in expectation 15 minutes, right? But they moved it to materialize and those same queries with very minor modifications to get the Snowflake mm -hmm. syntax to look like the Postgres syntax that mm -hmm. we support suddenly had freshness of seconds. So mm -hmm. their ability to detect fraud came down from 30 minutes to a couple seconds and that saves them real money. Serious dollars are on the line there. And with Materialize, they can often shut down these taken over accounts before they manage to spend any money. And that's a huge difference for them. Nice. Yeah, that sounds like not only a big difference to, to Ramp, but presumably all the startups using Ramp, right? And all the big companies using Ramp. Exactly. Okay, so so maybe let's let's talk a little bit about the kind of more technical pieces here, right? You went from this, and my understanding is you went from this single binary to this cloud offering. What did that involve? Uh, what are the, the kind of layers in Materialize Cloud today and, and how do they work together? So the initial vision for Materialize was a pretty standard SaaS play, a SaaS infrastructure play, where you offer a downloadable version of the binary and then you get bottom-up adoption because developers can with their own laptop that they've spent the money on, try out your software. They don't have to go get security review because they're not using a service that's going to ingest data from their private network. It's all happening on their laptop. They can see what's happening. They can see the network requests that are getting made. And you do that all on your laptop. And then when you are satisfied with the product, you go put it in production. And you have a Kubernetes operator or something that helps you orchestrate it or Back in the day, we'd have folks just throw it up on an EC2 instance because it was a single binary. It was very easy to deploy. Right. And that was one path to going from zero to one with Materialize inside of an organization. For folks who didn't want to take on the burden, we had our own managed offering where you would sign up for Materialize Cloud and we would host the binary for you. Mm -hmm. And what we found was people were very comfortable running Materialize themselves okay. because we had made it so easy. There wasn't a lot of additional value add in the managed version of Materialize in those days because we were just putting the binary on an EC2 server on your behalf. 
and then you had less control over it. You couldn't see the logs. Uh, you couldn't scale up and scale down without talking to us. And we knew we could build all of those features, but what we kept hearing was that the thing that would actually move the needle for people was horizontal scalability and fault mm -hmm. tolerance. Mm -hmm. They wanted the ability to run workloads that were larger than can fit on a single mm -hmm. node. And they wanted to be able to tolerate machine failure, to be able to do version upgrades without downtime. Mm -hmm. And we looked at the technical requirements of this, and it is so orchestration sensitive. It requires so much fine-grained control over exactly what machine is running what workload at what version that we didn't think we could build it in this hybrid world quickly right. Right. Materialize is a very complicated system. It's heterogeneous. It's got a storage layer, a compute layer, and a SQL layer. And it mm -hmm. doesn't make sense when you're scaling it out to run all of those in a symmetric binary. Mm -hmm. We wanted to have the flexibility to have different services that scaled differently, that had different mm -hmm. fault tolerance policies. And we didn't feel like we could deliver on that if we needed to package it up as a Helm chart or a right. Kubernetes right. operator that customers would run. We knew from our experience at Cockroach how painful it is to support a self-managed offering, and we were seeing it already with the single binary app materialized. Customers don't want to give you access to their production hardware, and rightly so. And right. you're lucky if you can get them on a Zoom call where you can dictate commands for them to run on the yeah, machine. Yeah. But the iteration cycle, the debugging required there, it's brutal. And we knew if we built a cloud service where we hosted everything, there's this customer trust hurdle you have to overcome. Mm -hmm. You're mm -hmm. bringing customer data into your own VPC. You're now responsible for its security. But in exchange, you're able to run the debugging that you need to. Mm -hmm. In the worst case, if you need to attach a debugger, if you need to attach GDB to a running process, you can do that when you're running your own managed server. You can get the CPU profiles and the memory profiles of mm -hmm. processes that are misbehaving. And that has been such a huge unlock for us. We would not have been able to build the new cloud native version of Materialize with horizontal scalability and with fault tolerance if right. we weren't hosting it ourselves. And, and I've always wondered about that in terms of having a hosted cloud native offering, which is... And you, you see this just trend, I guess, in general across database providers or, or just infrastructure providers that there's this temptation to abstract everything away, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, your, your database is just this endpoint, go and throw whatever you want at it. Uh, right. you, we, we give you these abstractions. And so you give us a query, we'll give you the answer. And, and in some very real sense, that is what the user cares about. And if you can do it, you can do it. But there's a lot of nuance to that. There's like very different workloads. To some extent, you want the customer to make the decisions about scaling and you want the yep. customer to fine tune and configure the system. Uh, how do you think about that trade-off? Is it better for the end user to not have to think about these parameters? That's the holy grail, right? If you have a system that's perfectly auto-scaling that handles it all for you. I think it's unrealistic. I don't think technology has gotten to the point where you can, for sufficiently complicated workloads, expect your infrastructure to just handle everything without you having some knowledge of how is the data laid out? How does the optimizer work? How do I understand whether this query plan is expensive or not? Mm -hmm. I see it most clearly in Snowflake. In Snowflake, you don't have indexes and they right. just handle it for you. But then at scale, what really matters is how you cluster your data. Exactly. And what is your clustering key 
but the primary index for your data. So even though they got away without indexes for a while, it turns out you hit this limit. You hit the upper envelope of performance where you have to start exposing knobs to users. And I'll say we're somewhat lucky at Materialize in that stream processing, operational data warehousing use cases, they're all relatively new. The technology is still nascent. So we have to expose some knobs in order to make it viable. In the limit, we would like to remove knobs, at least for workloads that are not pushing the performance envelope. But the technology as it exists today, materialized as it exists today, requires you to understand a little bit about how our data flows execute. So we have had those knobs from the beginning because the system isn't usable uh, without a little bit of advice, some hints from the user about what workloads should be co-located, what workloads should be isolated, and then how large do you want the machines for each of your workloads to be? So Snowflake has warehouses. We have clusters. A cluster is an isolated pool of compute resources, and they have t-shirt sizes. So you can have a small cluster, a large cluster, and we give you the observability that you need to understand how much memory is my workload using? Can I scale down? Do I need to scale up? But we had no choice. Auto-scaling for data flows is a novel technology that has not yet been invented at Materialize. So we expose the knobs to folks. And one thing that's been cool for us is a lot of auto-scaling is in response to user behavior. Mm -hmm. You have a bunch of users hit your site. Now you're running a thousand times as many queries. But for us, we're somewhat immune to that because the change in the write workload isn't nearly as large as the change in the read workload. And if you show up and run a thousand times more read queries against Materialize, it doesn't move the needle that much because we've been keeping all of that data incrementally maintained in memory. So for sure, there are some workloads with massive spikes in the write traffic, and you've got to over-provision or come up with your own auto-scaling strategy today to be able to absorb that. But in practice, we've actually been surprised by how few workloads really need auto-scaling when you use a system like Materialize. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And uh, it sounds like if there are some areas in which you are fairly prescriptive. So you know, you go to the, the Materialize website, you see there's, there's three properties you emphasize, freshness, consistency, and responsiveness. Yeah. Um, I think especially across different database vendors or, or warehouse vendors, those can be used pretty differently. And, and honestly, maybe purposely so. There's a little mm-hmm. bit of like obfuscation that is, uh, I don't know, perhaps uh, useful to have. So maybe give me your definition of what those three things mean uh, and how yeah. it thinks about them. Consistency is the easiest one to define, at least within the realm of uh, database jargon. So I'll start there. Consistency is roughly correctness. When I issue a query against Materialize, I get the correct results. And the reason we talk about consistency rather than correctness is because there's nuance to it. There are different types of correctness that you might expect. We call those isolation levels. And there are two modes that Materialize has for consistency. One is called serializability and one is called strict serializability. Let me start with serializability. The idea there is your database moves from one consistent state to another over time. Mm -hmm. And Materialize internally maintains the time at which each of your events occurred. And we mean time in a logical sense. So I'm actually going to switch to using the term revision instead. Your data starts at revision one. Often that's empty. No data exists. 
facts. Right. And then revision two, some new fact arrives. In revision three, another fact arrives. And that fact could be a new order. The next fact could be someone's address is updated. And often multiple things happen at the same time. An right. order was placed and the address was updated. Those happened atomically in your application, let's say. Mm-hmm. And you want to make sure that that order uses the new address. Yeah. You yeah. really don't want skew. You don't want your address updates to be running ahead of your orders updates. Right. So what serializability gives you is the language to express this atomicity between things that happened. And then the property that the system always moves consistently from one state that exists to one state that existed to another. So materialize, if we're ingesting from Postgres, you have an update to your orders and addresses tables at the same time in a single transaction. Materialize will write that down and it won't ever show you a view where the order has been updated and the address has not or vice versa. That's what serializability gives you. Now there's a wrinkle with serializability, which is often surprising. Serializability does not require that we always show you increasing revisions. You can run a query and get revision seven, and then you can run a different query and get revision five. Now, in practice, when you run a given query, we're never going to turn the clock backwards on you. If we show you revision seven, when you're querying the join of orders and addresses, we're going to show you revision seven or greater in the future. But the problem creeps in when you have different views derived from the same data. Hmm. Maybe you have another view that your analysts are running, which is the amount of orders that have been placed in a day. Mm -hmm. If you query that, we might give you revision five of that, not inclusive of the order that was just placed. And then when you go show me the address for this order that was just placed, we show you revision seven. Mm -hmm. So there's this time travel that can happen that's very Mm -hmm. surprising. So strict serializability is actually a very simple constraint on top of serializability. It says revisions must always move forward in time. If we ever show you revision five of anything, Mm -hmm. we must always show you revision five of everything else you query or greater. So it just gives people exactly the right mental model for how they expect their database to work. It matches the real world. The real world moves forward in time you often interact with your database expecting it to move forward in time in exactly the same way. Yeah, and that's interesting because I imagine most, let's say data analysts, aren't thinking about it in those terms. They're just thinking about like, look, if, I, if I'm if i looking here and I'm looking in the second place that should be derived from the same data source, obviously these can't be inconsistent with each other, right? Like in Orb's domain, right? It would be pretty catastrophic to have you know, like your your invoice revenue just not match your accounting ledger and, and for those to be out of sync in terms of time. Right? Exactly. And what's interesting about traditional data warehouses and batch-based systems is you get pretty strong consistency properties by virtue of the data doesn't change. So while the data is being loaded at night in that two-hour period, who knows what's happening, but it's okay. Nobody's looking at it. And then for the rest of the day, everyone sees exactly the same data because it's not changing. So you implicitly get some consistency properties there, even if the system wasn't built to give you those consistency properies. Yeah, yeah, Um, that's interesting. And and those other providers, is that just kind of their answer to this, this sort of technical constraint, which is, well, it's a batch system, we're not really worried about this use case, or even in that two hour period, do they have weaker guarantees uh, where some data could or could not be reflected depending on what state the system happens to be in? 
So most of the traditional data warehouses actually do have good consistency guarantees. They're an old technology. They've been around for decades, and that has become table stakes for mm -hmm. data warehouses. So they actually do give you good consistency properties. Where you eat it in those traditional data warehouses is on performance. If you're doing lots of rapid inserts, updates, and deletes, in order for them to give you strong consistency guarantees, they need to go slow down the rate of inserts. They batch them all together because they're batch-based systems and they only tip forward very slowly. So that's how they recover the consistency, which is fine when you're doing your bulk loads once an hour or once yeah. a day. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So maybe it's a good time to talk about freshness and responsiveness. Yeah. I think it's maybe interesting that responsiveness is in there because because mm -hmm. freshness, like it's the kind of the point of streaming, as you're saying, yep. it's, it's not that you're loading materialize overnight for two hours, but um, why have you placed responsiveness in these, in these three principles? Well, we find our users really value responsiveness. Freshness can present as your system is going slow. And mm -hmm. this is in fact the problem with strict serializability over serializability. So mm -hmm. I promise I'm gonna come right back to your question. Let me do a brief <laughs> digression into why a lot of users choose serializability. If you have two views, let's say one is doing an analytical query over your orders, computing the average order value for the day, and the other one is just show me every order and the address that was attached as it comes in. Right. This analytical query is going to take longer. In Materialize, it's a simple enough query that it's not going to take that long. But imagine it's much more complicated than what I just described. Maybe it takes five seconds for this query to come up to date. This is going to be very frustrating in strict serializable mode because if you're reading repeatedly from your fast moving join that's computed very quickly between orders and addresses, mm -hmm. you're going to get revision 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, exactly as they come online. But mm -hmm. if your analytical query is running five seconds behind, <laughs> it's always going to have to wait for that revision that we just showed the other person right. to be available. So this is often frustrating for people because if these two use cases are relatively decoupled, different people are looking at the different queries. You actually didn't want to force them to always be looking at revisions that move forward in time. You wanted them to be on their own independent timelines. So this is an example of where Materialize prioritizes freshness in strict serializable mode. We want to show you the freshest data in that query that's running a little bit behind real time. We will make you wait in order to show you data that incorporates the results that were fresh at the time that you started that query. And that's often not what people want. If you can get the freshness down under a certain threshold, then of course they want freshness. But if you say there's this trade-off between how quickly can we show you a result mm -hmm. and how fresh do you want that result to be, a lot of people will choose, I want to see slightly stale data faster. Right. Right. So that's why responsiveness is one of these key properties that we promote because we can be very responsive because we have kept the data in memory ready to be served. It's just a little bit stale. Yeah. And if you just want to see that, we don't want to prevent you from seeing that. It can take sub 10 milliseconds for us to go grab the value you've already computed in memory and hand it back to you. You got to be running in the same AWS data center that we're currently deployed in. You can choose between the, the three we have available. But if you do that and you have an EC2 instance that's serving your application, it's right next to our deployment of Materialize that's keeping your results up to date. And you get single digit millisecond latencies when you run a query. Yeah. And that's pretty sweet. And in your example there, does it matter that someone else is querying the other data set? Like, you know, in a traditional IO system, like 
I, I guess the mental model is simpler, right? Because it's like someone queries and then the other person queries, well, well, these have to have some ordering now. But with Materialize, you're, you're just like keeping them up to date by default, yep. right? So yep. is, is it like strict serializability over viewed results or, or over maintained results? So okay. the maintenance of queries always progresses according to the revisions that are presented. Mm -hmm. So revision five, six, seven, we'll compute the results for five, six, seven. Mm -hmm. The strict serializability constraint is just about what we show you. Okay, okay, yeah. So under the hood, we have five, six, and seven all queued yeah. up in there. But then when your query comes in, we go, hang on, what have we told you about previously? And yeah. if we previously told you about seven, we ignore the fact that we know the answers to five and six, yeah. and we block your query until we have the answer for seven available. Yeah. And then we show yeah. it to you. Yeah. I guess what I was asking is, let's say that you have, for a different view, computed five mm -hmm. and six and then seven, but, but no mm -hmm. one has seen that. And for yep. this view, you're on, let's say six. You, yep. You'll still show six because no one has seen seven. Is, is that yes. Right? Okay. It, right. Exactly. And there's a number of ways you can play with the timestamp selection policy to trade off between freshness and responsiveness. And right now we actually do force the clock forwards. So while we could choose to say, nobody's seen V6, we're just gonna hold here so that we can always serve results for six for everything. We yeah. do eventually, there's a timer in Materialize. It's like, hey, V6 is like a couple seconds out of date. <laughs> we need to tick forward uh, right. because that's the policy decision we've made. We want to guarantee some amount of freshness in strict serializable mode. But cool. you don't have to do that. You can imagine other timestamp selection policies and materialize that say, you know what? Freshness is never important. We do want to enforce that we only show you revisions that increase over time. But if that revision is a day out of date, that revision is a day out of date and we'll show that to you. And that's still technically strictly serializable. Yeah. Yeah. It, this, this conversation is interesting because I, I imagine this sort of stuff matters a lot more for operational analytics. I, I can't imagine someone cares so much if they're just like backing some dashboard by this or, or you know, even if it's like a, a periodic report they're sending to someone. Yep. Whereas if you're doing fraud detection, it seems like the consistency exactly. and correctness guarantees are much, much more important. Otherwise your, your model is broken in some fundamental way and you, you're going to take exactly. some action on top of that that could just be plain wrong. Exactly. Operational workloads often have side effects is the way I think about it. Yeah, You're taking yeah. action on the data that is computed. And that action yeah. might be sending someone an email, firing off a Slack alert, shutting someone's account down. And yeah. the nature of side effects is you can't take them back. You cannot unsend an email. Unblocking someone's credit card that was uh, experiencing yeah. a fraudulent transaction, that's hard. You've already fired off a scary alert to that customer. If it turns out it was just a temporary glitch in your data model, that feels really bad to explain that to the customer. You probably just don't. You probably yeah. just say, our systems detected this was fraudulent. Call us to unblock it. And you just right. you just eat it on the customer support side. Right, right. Yeah. Um, Okay, so, so let's talk about another one of the reasons that you said made sense to do a cloud native offering, which is to offer things like uh, zero downtime operation. So let's talk about version upgrades and materialize. Tell me, why are those hard? What about materializes, um, I guess, abstractions or modeling make those tricky? So in a traditional database, the state is very simple to describe. It is just the tables. Every time you've run create table, 
that is state every time you've inserted into those tables that's updated the state but when you do a version upgrade for postgres or for cockroach if they've changed any details about the way they want to store data on disk when the new version comes online they know where to look it's all of those tables you update them uh, and then you're back in business if any of the logic in queries has changed it just changes when the new version comes online the next time someone runs a select query great you just run it with the new logic so the bit of the system that needs to be backwards compatible is very small it's just the data that's stored on disk now the problem is actually harder in cockroach because they support live version upgrades but in postgres you have to do a stop the world upgrade you turn off postgres 14 and you turn on postgres 15. at no moment are 14 and 15 ever coexisting and i think I forget if this is still the case in Postgres, but certainly back in the day, you had to run PG upgrade. And PG upgrade, what it does is it literally loads every table up, rewrites it in the new V15 format, and then writes it back to disk. Yeah. Uh, so it's a very clean upgrade story. The downside, of course, is that there is downtime. Now, Materialize has this same problem, except it is so much worse because not only do we have the data in tables and sources, we have intermediate state for all of these operators that are continually maintaining the results of your query. Mm -hmm. And whenever we make a change to materialize, that potentially invalidates any of this intermediate state. Yeah. And the approach a lot of other stream processors took, like Flink, was, all right, every operator needs to know how to upgrade its state. And you've got to join somewhere at V14, and you want to upgrade to V15 <laughs> of Flink, V15's join operator needs to know how to interpret V14 yeah. state. And this is terrifying. It right. limits, it fundamentally limits the kind of changes you can do. Not all bugs are recoverable like this. Right. If right. you have a sufficiently fatal bug, the state you have is total crap. You have to throw it away. So you're stuck solving this general problem of how do I have two versions of the system online at the same time mm -hmm. where I can quickly cut over from the old version to the new version, where the new version is not sharing any state with the old version, because for the worst bugs, you simply cannot share that state. So, so let me ask a naive question. Why not just rematerialize all the views? Like, why not do the, the thing that Postgres does? And like, great, you rewrite all your tables, then you rematerialize all your views, you wait until you catch up, then you do a switch over. So that is exactly how version upgrades and materialize work today, except for the switchover part. That is the part that is very hard in materialize. And the reason is you need to catch up the system to the point that it would perform side effects and then pause it there. And you cannot let it perform any side effects until you're ready to do the cut. If you're writing to a Kafka sync from your materialize, we need to catch up the new version so that it is ready and poised to start writing new events to the Kafka sync. But there may be other parts of the system that are still catching up. So we can't let any of those events go out from the new version right. until the entire system has reached that point where it's ready to cut over. And then we need to snap our fingers, have the old version stop performing any side effects, and let the new version start performing the side effects. And doing that cutover consistently across every component of your materialized environment that could be performing side effects, which is hopefully many, which is hopefully yeah, lots sure. of different use cases throughout your business. It's really hard. And it's not something we designed into the system from the beginning. So what implications does that have for the end user of materialized? You have 
spent a lot of time building this uh, under the hood, so to speak, right? The whole point of yep. the cloud native offering. But w- what does it mean if I pick up Materialize and start using it? Do I notice? Like, do I care? You'll notice during our first maintenance window. So we do a maintenance window every week. We schedule them outside of business hours. So if your operational processes only depend on Materialize being live during your core business hours, based on the region you're in, we will make sure that the upgrade happens outside of your business hours just once a week. But you'll notice a blip. For smaller workloads, that blip is often under a minute or two. Mm -hmm. For larger workloads, the blip is as long as it takes for us to rehydrate the state of all of those operations. And in some cases, that's hours. Hmm. Generally, you don't see it taking longer than hours because it's really hard to do development. If every time you deploy a data flow, it takes six hours for that data flow to catch up. So we're always working to make hydration faster because that increases the number of workloads that we can support on Materialize. But there's this practical limit of a couple hours in order to bring a data flow online. So in the worst case, what we see right now is two hours, three hours of of downtime while Materialize catches back up. And and it's interesting you you call that downtime because in in some very real sense, Materialize is up and running. Uh, And in fact, it can even return data. It's just that data is not going to be caught up, right? One, like, is that actually true? Like, do people query Materialize during that quote unquote downtime and just accept the trade-off or, or, you know, accept the fact that their reads are going to be much slower because they're not materialized. And two, how do you, how do you generally think about the difference between downtime in terms of guarantees versus downtimes in terms of, Hey, like this machine is not reachable. For sure. And, and you caught me using the colloquial definition of downtime there. And what we're trying to become precise about it, materialize is downtime versus availability. So we've gotten the downtime according to our definition of downtime to under one minute for version upgrades. Mm -hmm. And the downtime is the period of time where Materialize does not respond to your connection requests at all. You show up, you initiate a SQL or an HTTP request, Materialize says 500 error system upgrade. That now takes less than a minute. Then there's the period of unavailability where your data flows are catching up. And what unavailability means really depends on your workload. It is the experience of your application not performing to specification. That's what we mean by unavailable. Now, for a lot of applications, stillness is tolerable. They would prefer responsiveness to uh, freshness. So we can serve them stale results. So we can get the unavailability window down substantially for these customers, even without having fully built out support for seamless 100% available uh, version upgrades. And the way we do that is by allowing Materialize to serve these stale results that it had at the last version, even before it's caught up at the new version. So you can arrange your queries in Materialize so that the output of a query is written to a Materialized view, where the name of Materialize comes from, and then you serve the results out of that Materialized view. So when Materialize comes online at the new version, we have to go read the old version's results. They're stored on S3. But this can be very, very fast. We can read hundreds of megabytes of second uh, from S3. So for a 100 gigabyte uh, materialized view, we can be back up to date in just a few minutes. Hmm. And then you can start serving stale results. 
out of this materialized view that was computed by the last version of materialized. So the unavailability window for your application is often just a few minutes. And in the background, we're spinning up all the data flows to get that materialized view caught up to the current time. Maybe that takes 30, 45 minutes, an hour. And then as soon as we're caught back up, there's this moment where your materialized view produces all the new results. And then we're back in business where uh, live updating in response to changes from that point forward for the rest of the week. And, and just so I understand the mechanic, uh, more precisely, is it that you are computing the latest version of that materialized view, picking back up from the stored materialized view from the previous version? Exactly. Okay. okay. And so, so that's where the compatibility of operators is, is necessary, right? It, exactly. But what's clever about the way we've set this up is it's not that every operator's intermediate state needs to be backwards compatible. Mm -hmm. It's just the way we write data to S3. And we were already doing that for tables and sources. When you bring that data into Materialize, we go put it on S3 in our proprietary format that we maintain strict backwards compatibility. Then we do a bunch of processing according to the queries that you have installed in Materialize. And you have two options. You can either serve them directly out of memory or you can request Materialize to put that back on S3 in a Materialized view. And then you can serve out of that. So we'll write down the output of your query on S3 using the same backwards compatible format. Mm -hmm. But we don't write down the intermediate state of the joins, the filters, the aggregations, everything that got you to that answer. Interesting. So uh, what is Materialize's philosophy around like user-defined operators? Because what implications does this have on if I'm defining my own operator? So today we don't support user-defined operators. It's a very easy answer. We want to eventually. And the way we've set things up, it's very easy for us to allow you to write an operator. There are essentially no constraints on that operator besides that it is deterministic. If you put a non-deterministic in operator into materialize, everything goes haywire. Right. But aside from that, you don't need to do any complicated state management. You don't have to write your state to be backwards compatible, handle version upgrades. People who come from a stream processing background who are used to Spark or Flink, yeah. they are used to trying to figure out how to take their local RocksDB exactly. and convert it to the new RocksDB yeah. and the new version. You would not have to do that with user-defined operators and materialize because we throw away the state at the end of the version and rehydrate the state from scratch at the mm -hmm. new version. So if you have a bug in your logic, it's no big deal. You just update it. You have the code that now works correctly. You drop that into materialize and we will diff the results of the new computation against the old computation that we stored on disk. And if it results in very different answers, we will then commit the updated result. And you will actually see in your output, like, hey, that's weird. Why did one plus one suddenly go from three to two? Oh, I see. There was a bug in materialize. And now I have gotten an update for every single thing in the system, correcting it to, to the right answer. Got it. So maybe last question here. Let's let's talk a little bit about the scale that Materialize operates at, right? So, so you gave the example of RAMP. Uh, I imagine RAMP processes a ton of transactions. So what issues or interesting thorns have you faced scaling Materialize? Um, and you know, has there been anything where you just didn't expect it going in that for operational workloads of this type, you would hit those challenges? I've been surprised by how little update rate has been a problem for us. Differential data flow, the underlying stream processor uh, at the heart of Materialize that 
our co-founder Frank uh, worked on in academia for a long time is overpowered <laughs> on this front. It can handle a crazy number of updates per second. And what we found is the real world does not have that many updates per second, at least the workloads that we're seeing today. Thousands of updates per second is a high volume workload for most of our customers. And differential doesn't break a sweat. That is no problem at all. Where we have seen a lot of trouble for workloads at the upper envelope is on the amount of data that's required coupled with complex joins and aggregations because we maintain a lot of intermediate state so that when a new fact flows in, it just ping pongs between a bunch of in-memory data and then spits out the other end ASAP in under a second. And to do that, we have to maintain all of this in-memory state. And that can be expensive if you have hundreds of gigabytes of data that you need to join against multiple times. And a lot of these data warehousing queries tend to be seven left outer joins in order to fill in a bunch of nulls and then you do yeah. some cleaning. Uh, but the queries can get pretty hairy in a warehousing context because to their credit, data warehouses are very good at grinding over lots of data with really complicated queries pretty quickly. Right. So if you're pushing the bounds of materialize in terms of number of joins and number of aggregations and the amount of data you have, materialize actually scales really well for the strict academic definition of scaling, which is you just buy more machines. Yeah. So you can go turn on 12 computers and shard your data across right. those 12 computers. You don't even know that the sharding is happening. We handle all of that for you. What you notice is your bill. What you notice is that you are paying for a lot of EC2 instances, a lot of CPUs and a lot of memory to maintain right. those data flows. And that's, right. that's pretty expensive. Memory is a lot more expensive than disk. Awesome. Okay. Well, um, let me actually ask a final question. What are you looking yeah. forward to in the next, uh, let's say, six to eight months at Materialize, and then, and then we'll wrap up? Well, on, on the last question, what I'm looking forward to is Materialize being able to spill to disk. We have a feature in the works that will allow us to page out cold data from memory to disk. Nice. And that's pretty game changing for us because it fundamentally changes the economics of a lot of these data flows to go from. You have to pay thousands of dollars to keep this all in memory to you can pay potentially 10x less than that if we get this working to keep it on disk. On a broader scale, what I'm really excited about is we have a number of connectors in the works to bring more data into Materialize and a right. number of connectors to get data out of materialized to more places. So there are more side effects that you can do. There are more actions you can power with materialized. And I think it's gonna open up a whole new universe of possibilities. I've already been blown away by what our customers are able to build on materialized today. And the missing piece is just having a dozen more sources and a dozen more sinks. So I think we're gonna see an absolute explosion of use cases in materialized by unlocking a couple more sources and sinks. And that's what we're working on over the next six to 18 months. Awesome. Well, that's very exciting. And I really appreciate you, you taking the time. Thanks for being on the, on the podcast. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Of course.